For those of you who are salespeople or business owners or marketers or those with a business acumen, you know that there are three important elements to consider when you want to sell something, when you want to sell a product. The first important element is attitude. Does your workforce, does your sales force, does your team have an attitude willing to go the extra mile to sell the product that you have? Because if you don't have a winning attitude, if you have an attitude that is defeatist, then you will not be able to sell your product well. And imagine if you're opening a shoe store and none of your employees bothered to get the right size for their customer. You know, would you buy shoes from an employee that tells you, I'm sorry, sir, the size you want is stacked really high in my storage room. Why don't you just buy a size or a style that's right here in the front? I don't want to go back to get your size. We'd walk out of that store. That is an employee that does not have an attitude that would want you to buy from them. The second important element to consider when you want to sell something is the product itself. What type of product are you selling? Is it real? Is it fake? Is it any good? Does it work? I've traveled around the world preaching, and whenever I go around the world, I get offered fake watches when I go shopping for some souvenirs. And some of the fakes are great, but some of them are just terrible. I, don't, I want a Rolex, not a Rolex. You know, if you're going to sell me a fake, at least spell the brand correctly. Or is that product for everyone? We ask ourselves the question, or should? Does the product I have really meet the needs of everyone? You know, there's a reason why I don't go into any H&M store anywhere here in the Philippines, much less Asia. Why? Because the largest size they have is XL. And I'm at least a 2XL. And there's no need for me to go into this store because there's nothing that, fe- uh, that fits me. And it's simply a waste of time. And I sometimes walk by those stores and I say, you know what, H&M is missing out on a huge segment group. People like me. People on the larger size. And there are very few people in this country who are marketing to those who are at least 2XL or higher. And so there's no reason to buy their products. The third element, if you want to sell something well, is to know your target audience. Do you have in mind a specific group of people you know that need the product? Are you trying to sell appliances to people who don't have electricity and wonder why they are not selling? Are you trying to sell heavy winter down jackets to people who live in the tropics, wondering why your sales are not on fire? Failure to consider attitude, product, and a target group will invariably lead to a failure of sales or simply failure. As we continue our sermon series entitled Imperfect, we are reminding you that we are to reach out to the many who are imperfect so that they can be made perfect in Christ. Just as all of us are imperfect, made perfect in Christ. But how do we present Jesus to a world full of sinners and the lost and the imperfects that surround all of us. Now listen carefully. I don't want you to think that somehow we have to try to sell Jesus. That we have to manipulate and coerce and convince someone to accept Jesus. 
We don't have to sell Jesus to others as if he's a product. People freely come to know Jesus because the person and his actions sell himself. But just for the sake of the sermon this morning, I want to put what we're going to talk about in the context of quote-unquote selling Jesus to the world. To put ourselves in the position of salespeople for Jesus. Only this Sunday, so that you can understand the principles we're talking about a bit better. Turn with me in your Bibles this morning to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 5, as we take a look at verses 12 to 32. In Luke, chapter 5, verses 12 to 32, there are three sequential events in the early ministry of Jesus where he defines these three things very clearly. As he reveals himself to the world, he shows us the attitude by which he reaches the lost. He shows us the product that he is offering. And he states very clearly the target group. And if we are to follow Jesus, if we are to be the salespeople, the the workforce of Jesus to the world, then these things we must learn. The first element that is important to consider when you want to sell something is attitude. Attitude is everything, as you have heard. Let me tell you a story. There once was a woman who woke up one morning. She looked in the mirror and noticed that she only had left three strands of hair on her head. Instead of getting depressed, she said, well, I think I'll braid my hair today. And so she did, and she had a wonderful day. Well, the next day she woke up and she looked in the mirror and saw that one of the hair strands had fallen out and she only had two strands of hair on her head. Hmm, she said. I think I'll part my hair down the middle today. And so she did that and she had a great day. The next morning she woke up and looked in the mirror and noticed that one of the hair strands had fallen and now she only had one strand of hair on her head. Well, she said, looking in the mirror today, I'm going to wear my hair in a ponytail. And she did. And she had a fun, fun day. The next day she woke up, looked in the mirror, and noticed that that last strand of hair had fallen out, and there wasn't a single hair on her head. She exclaimed, yay, I don't have to fix my hair today. It's all about the attitude And here, as we pick up our study in verse 12, Jesus will tell us about the attitude, verse 12. And it happened when he was in a certain city that, behold, a man who was full of leprosy saw Jesus. And he fell on his face and implored him, saying, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus enters this unnamed city, meets a man full of leprosy, And while this disease is no longer much of an issue today, back then in the time of Jesus, having leprosy meant the end of your life. You were an outcast. For those of you who don't know what leprosy is, leprosy is caused by uh, a severe bacteria. And without antibiotics of that day, in that day, it produces a disfiguring skin sore. It disfigures the face and every part of the body where these sores reside. The nerve is damaged. It causes your external extremities to begin to ball up. There was muscle weakness. 
And so in the time of Jesus, having leprosy meant that you were cast out of society to live in leper colonies, of which there were very few, or you were to live by yourself as you suffered alone. And sometimes if your family was nice or thought about you, they would bring you food, but they would leave it at a drop-off point, and you would go and pick it up by yourself. This man who had lived like this, I'm sure for a long time, heard what Jesus had done. And he must have been surprised and excited to see that Jesus was in his town. And the Bible tells us he implored Jesus to make him clean, to heal him. And he asks Jesus the question, look with me again in verse 12. Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Here's the question he's asking. Lord, I know you can do it, but do you want to do it? And here's Jesus' reply in verse 13. Then he put out his hand and touched him, saying, I am willing, be cleansed. Immediately the leprosy left him. Jesus indicated that he was willing. But I want you to notice his action before his words. Did you catch that in verse 13? The Bible tells us, Jesus touched him, laid his hands on him. And in the act of touching, Jesus ran the risk of contracting that disease of leprosy, as was the common thought of that day. If you touched a leprous man or a woman, you would have contracted leprosy. And that's why in that day and age, lepers were to yell out, unclean, unclean, if they approached other people or if others were approaching near them. Now, Jesus could have simply stood far behind and said, Leper, be healed. And the leper would have been healed. And after he was healed, cleared immediately miraculously out of his leprosy, then Jesus would have patted him on the back and say, I was willing. But look at verse 13. Jesus showed his willingness to heal the man that he felt compassion for by first touching him, risking his own health. And that action before words shows the type of willingness that Jesus exemplified. You see, in reaching out to the lost, who are imperfect, the sinners of this world, many are willing. We're all willing. And that's a wonderful start. But the willingness that we have is not the willingness that Jesus exemplifies. Here Jesus shows forth, number one, a sacrificial willingness. The attitude that he showed forth to this leper was a sacrificial willingness to reach out to an imperfect man. You see, willingness is more than simply a desire to help others or reach out to them. A willingness that seeks the loss and the hurting is a willingness that must be sacrificial. Now listen carefully. Willingness out of your own convenience is different from a willingness out of your inconvenience. Did you get that? A willingness out of your convenience is different from a willingness out of your inconvenience. For example, if I were to ask this congregation this morning, how many of you would be willing to help me mop the floors of this church? I really pray that a vast majority of you would raise your hand. I hope so. And I think so. If I were to ask and add this part, how many of you would be, of you would be willing to help me mop the floor, 
during Game 7 of the NBA Finals. All the men would disappear. Or how, what have I told you? How many of you would be willing to help me mop the floor on your birthday? On your birthday. Or how about on Christmas? New Year's? I'm sure many of you would have second thoughts. Do you see my point? If I were to tell you how many of you are willing to help me when you have time, everyone would raise their hands. But when I specify the time, a lot of hands go down. And that's the problem for a lot of Christians. Everyone has a willing heart. I'm sure after this sermon this morning or after last week's sermon, maybe many of you are motivated and challenged with a willing heart for the lost. But then we began to think about our convenience. And that willingness was centered on our convenience, our own time, our own place. And the willingness that we employ in our lives is so conditioned on our convenience that the evil one, Satan, knows how to dampen down our willingness, how to prevent us from reaching out to the loss. What does he do? He just simply gives us more fun things to do. He gives us more obligations and events to go to. He gives us things to do so that we get trapped into the busyness of life. That even though we have willingness to serve God, a willingness to draw closer to Him, a willingness to reach the lost, all that is pushed down because we are all lost in the priorities of our lives. But it is when you understand sacrificial willingness that you will do what is required to reach the imperfect people of the world. Sacrificial willingness. If you remember my beginning illustration, it would be a shoe salesperson who was willing to entertain a customer who asked them to try 30 or 40 pairs of shoes of various styles and various sizes as they kept going back to the stockroom. You know people like that. Maybe you're one of them. And then after they've tried on 30 pairs of shoes, what do they say? Let me think about it. And then they walk out the store, leaving you or your company or your store with boxes of shoes open. And for that salesperson to then put all the shoes back in boxes and bring it back to the stock room and arrange it nicely with a smile. How many of you could do that? Because we say we're all willing to serve someone. We're all willing to do something. But that sort of example exemplifies a sacrificial willingness. More practically, how about some of you on a given weekend? I know that a lot of you love after service to just chat with your friends. How many of you are willing to not meet and chat with your friend just for one week so that you can reach out to a family that you don't know, to get to know them? How many of you are willing to give up a social obligation or family function that you do every week so that you can be more willingly involved in the ministry that has a need? How many? How many of you are willing to eat a bit later or eat a bit earlier or wake up a bit earlier to fulfill a role that the body of Christ needs? I would never question your willingness. We all are willing to serve God. But is your willingness a sacrificial one? Is it conditioned upon your convenience or your inconvenience? 
What is your attitude? Jump down to verse 17 with me, the second sequential event that the gospel writer Luke puts in chapter 5. Look with me as I read verse 17. Now it happened on a certain day as he was teaching that there were Pharisees and teachers of the law sitting by who had come out of every town of Galilee, Judea, and Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was present to heal them. So in this next sequential event, Luke describes a day where Jesus was teaching in a house that was full of people listening. And the people who were listening were experts in the Jewish religious laws called Pharisees and other teachers from all over the region of the Galilee, Judea, and Jerusalem. And they had gathered to hear the amazing teaching of Jesus. It was an SRO situation, a standing room only. And this is where we pick up the story in verse 18. Then behold, men brought on a bed a man who was paralyzed, whom they sought to bring in and lay before him. And when they could not find how they might bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the housetop and let him down with his bed through the tiling into the midst before Jesus. The Bible tells us some man brought their friend, a paralyzed man, to come to see Jesus. But because the house was so full of people, they couldn't get close to Jesus. They couldn't have Jesus pay attention to this paralytic man. And you know the Pharisees and these teachers, they're all about themselves. When they saw a paralytic being carried towards the house, I'm sure not a person moved because the Bible says they couldn't get in. And so in their desperation for Jesus to see this paralytic man, they climbed the rooftop, took off the roofing tiles, and lowered this paralyzed man down by ropes so that Jesus could notice him. And I'm sure he really noticed them when especially a man is lowered from the roof. Now put yourself in this situation. Is there a similar situation where there is someone you know that just has to know Jesus? Would you make the extra effort to think of a way for that person to meet Jesus? Would you think of a creative way by which to get them to know Jesus? You see, that effort goes to the question of your desperation. How desperate are you for your friend and family to see Jesus? And where do we get that desperation? That desperation comes through the product. You see, that's what, that, that, that is what makes great salespeople. If they know the product, they've tried the product themselves, they know it works, they are desperate for others to try. They can share personal testimonies of how that product has helped them. Because it works. The desperation of why we do something, the reason of our desperation is because of the product. For example... If there was, and this is a hypothetical, it'll never happen, but who knows. If next month there is a free NBA game, the regular season, of the Golden State Warriors against the Cleveland Cavaliers. It was to be played at Moa Arena, and tickets would be given free to the first 20,000 people who stand in line. Let me ask you, would you wait in line? And let me add that this game would not be shown on TV, because I know how you think. lazy. If it's something on TV, we can watch it there. But it's not going to be shown on TV. First 20,000 lining up for Moa Arena's game will get a ticket. 
Even if there's a chance you will not get in, would you stand in line for hours for the chance to be able to see stars like LeBron and Curry play? I'm sure a lot of guys in our church would do it, especially if you've never experienced watching an NBA game live. I'm sure many of us would do it. We'd be desperate to try to secure one of those tickets. We may even pay someone to stand in line for us. Now, what if it wasn't an NBA game? Let me just change one letter. What if it was a PBA game? I'm sure there are a lot of PBA fans out here, maybe a little bit less enthusiastic, but you still have people who want to watch a free PBA game, right? Maybe you wouldn't have to wait as long, but it's there. Now, what if it was a GCC high school basketball game? Would you even drive out to Moa? Think about it. And no offense to our GCC basketball team, by the way. One day, they will draw the crowds. But let's replace the basketball analogy for some of the women in our church. What if it's a free concert for Leia Salonga? People who love music would wait in line, desperate to get free tickets. But let's replace Leia with someone like me. What if I was the headline act? I'd probably have to pay people to come and listen to me sing. The reason for the difference in desperation is real simple. The product. The product. If the product is good, you will be desperate to get it. If the product is no good, you won't put in the effort. If the product works, it's genuine, works all the time, you would be desperate to share it with others. If there's a pill that allows you to lose weight without exercising, allows you to eat all that you want, it works 100% of the time with no side effects for all types of people, and it is free, you'd be sharing it with everyone. And by the way, if there's a product like this, please do let me know. If there's a product that that gets rid of wrinkles or reverses hair loss and the aging process that works 100% of the time, has no side effects, and is free, you would be begging people to try it. And so what is the product offered by Jesus that would make men and women desperate to see him and for us desperate to share? Take a look, verse 20. When he saw their faith, he said to him, Man, your sins are forgiven you. When Jesus sees the faith that these men exemplify, He forgives the sin of the paralytic. This is important to note. You see, Jesus does not offer a product that says, I am here so that all who are infirmed may be healed. Jesus did not come to earth to offer a product where everyone gets rich and is blessed. The paralytic man everyone in that place would have thought that he just needed to walk. But instead, look at verse 20. Jesus very clearly tells the audience and tells everyone there his product offering. I have the ability to forgive sin. Man, your sins are forgiven you. And that's number two, the product. The product that Jesus offers is the ability to forgive sins. Look at the reaction, verse 21. 
And the scribes and the Pharisees began to reason, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemy? Who can forgive sins but God alone? But when Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered and said to them, Why are you reasoning in your heart? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, rise up and walk? The Pharisees and the scribes were infuriated that because only God can forgive sin, Jesus offering the same thing means that Jesus is saying that he is God. And Jesus knew their skepticism and he knew their thinking, and he asks them, which is easier, to show forth an invisible work of forgiving sin or the visible work of having a paralyzed man walk again? And to authenticate his ability to forgive sin, Jesus responds to them in verse 24. But that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins, He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, arise, take up your bed, and go to your house. Immediately he rose up before them, took up what he had been laying on, and departed to his own house, glorifying God. They were all amazed, and they glorified God and were filled with fear, saying, we have seen strange things today. I want you to notice verse 24 again. Look what Jesus says. That you may know that the Son of Man, that Jesus has the power to forgive sin, so that you may know that I have the power to forgive sin, that you may know that this product works. Paralyzed man, walk again. And the paralyzed man got up, took up his mat, and went back home. The emphasis is not on the miraculous healing. The emphasis is on the truth that Jesus has the ability to forgive sin. And Jesus has no competitors. There are a lot who try, but they're all fake. Jesus says very clearly, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is the only one, because he is God, who can do it. He's the only one in the entire person that can forgive sin. Not the pastor, not the priest, not anyone else that has the power to forgive sin, only the saving blood of Jesus Christ do men and women find forgiveness of sin. There are lots of great singers out there. There are lots of great NBA games, but there is only one who can forgive sin. And because he is the only one, you and I should be desperate to tell others about it. You and I should be desperately willing to reach the sinners and the lost and the imperfect people of this world to tell them about this product that always works, that is for all people of all sizes, of all stripes and of all shapes, and that it is absolutely free. And that desperation, because the product is so good, must be there in your lives. The world around you is dying. You and I have the product, the serum, that can cure them of their spiritual death, their march towards spiritual death. Are you begging and pleading with them to take it, to taste it, to hear about it? You know, most oftentimes, you know when that desperation comes? That desperation comes in the hospital room 
When your father, your mother, your grandparents, or your aging friend is on a respirator and I get a phone call, or one of our staff members gets a phone call, please, pastor, come, rush to the hospital. They're not going to make it through the night. And sorry to burst your bubble, but there are times when we whisper into their ears and we don't know if they hear anything at all or not. We try to assuage ourselves and we tell us, and we tell each other, the hearing is the last to go. Did you ever, did you ever hear that? The hearing is the last to go. Well, the brain isn't working. Whatever you hear doesn't get comprehended. And I'm making light of this. I'm just telling you the reality of how in our desperation we only say things that make us feel good. And sometimes we say, oh, look, he nodded his head. It could be a muscle spasm from the drugs. I don't know. And you cannot be sure. But why wait until that moment of desperation when you cannot be sure to tell them about the fact that there is a life-changing, life-altering serum that can bring them from spiritual death to spiritual life? It should happen now. It should happen when their minds are clear. It should happen when they are very much alive and they can comprehend what you are trying to tell them. Jesus can forgive sin. He is the only one that can forgive sin. It works 100% of the time. It is free. There are no side effects. You and I should be begging. Just like in marketing. If there's a product we really believe in, what do we do? We use different methods to get people to listen to it. We take them out to meals. We trade off time. We give them something so that they'll come and listen. Why can't we do the same with the message of a Jesus Christ who has the ability to forgive sin and he's the only one that can do it? Can we tell our family, I won't go to your family dinner unless you come to church with me first and then I'll buy you lunch. Come with me. Let, let's, let's go to church together and we'll get dinner together. If grandparents don't want to come, send the grandkids to ask them. They're very effective. If the desperation is there, you will be trying every method that you have in your toolbox to get them to hear about a product that is only offered by Jesus, no one else. And it works 100% of the time, no strings attached, absolutely free. The third aspect of a good business and to promote sales is to know your target group. A business will fail if you don't have a specific target group. That's why someone said, when you try to communicate to everyone and anyone, you end up with a message that resonates with no one. And that's why U.S. marketers, when they're marketing to the general population, they market to those between the ages of 18 and 49. That is called the golden group. That is the most coveted group. And that is what drives the consumer market in America. Why? Because the marketers know that anyone, oftentimes generally under 18, they don't have any money to spend. Those over 50, they're too old. And most of them are on the verge of retirement, and therefore they're not willing to spend money. They're stingier. And so if you're in this 18 to 49 age group, you are being marketed to. That's why if you notice the movies and the television shows 
And the products out there, it's all young and hip because that's the group it reaches out to. Movies starring a lot of middle-aged or old men and women are not often in the market. But if you're outside of the spectrum, how does that make you feel? Right? How does it make you feel? If you're under 18 or you're over 45, you feel left out. It's like me with H&M. You just never feel as if you are being reached out to. And I want to say, you know what? You're missing out on a huge segment group. But Jesus is going to define the target group that is very specific that exempts no one. Because if you and I were to pick a demographic or to pick a target group, we'd pick the richest. We'd pick one with the most capacity and the most capability. But Jesus made it clear in the third sequential event of Luke chapter 5, starting in verse 27, the type of group he was going to target. Look with me. And after these things, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax office. And he said to him, follow me. So he left all, rose up, and followed him. Verse 27, after these things, what are those things? The healing of the leper and the paralyzed man. Jesus saw Levi, the Bible tells us, a tax collector sitting in his office. He called out to this man who was hated and spurned by many to follow him. Tax collectors in those days were hated because most of them were corrupt. Plus, who likes tax collectors in general? And many Jews thought that their tax collectors, oftentimes Jewish as well, were traitors because they were helping the oppressive Roman Empire. And it reminded them of their subjugation. Look what happens, verse 29. Then Levi gave him a great feast in his own house. And there were a great number of tax collectors and others who sat down with him. Levi is so honored that the local celebrity preacher had called out to him, singled him out, that he threw a feast in Jesus' name. Of course, who does Levi invite? He doesn't have much friends. All his friends are mostly tax collectors. And so it should be no surprise in verse 29 that there were a great number of them. But look at the comment by those who are watching this, verse 30. And their scribes and the Pharisees complained against his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered and said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. The religious leaders saw the gathering of the imperfects, at least in their mind, and the sinners. And they commented, why in the world would this great teacher want to associate with people like this? Jesus, knowing what they were murmuring, makes it abundantly clear. I have come to reach out to the sinners the loss of the imperfects of the world. And he uses an analogy that those who are sick need a doctor. Those who are well do not need one. Jesus is saying, I'm offering something to those who really need it. I'm offering the ability to forgive sins. And therefore, those who need it are the sinners. And that is the target group of Jesus. Number three, the sinners. The church is a place where sinners need to come. 
The church is not a place to draw other Christians from other churches. The church is a place where we welcome sinners because the church proclaims a Jesus who meets their need, the need of the forgiveness of sin. That's why I've often said, those who think themselves perfect do not need to come to church. And those who do not come to church often think themselves perfect. Jesus came to reach out to the imperfect sinners of the world. Is that your target group as you live the Christian life? I read recently Alexis Rodrigo's article, Five Common Mistakes Businesses Make with Their Target Market. And I like an illustration. She writes, If you were selling hamburger and could wish for anything in the world to guarantee your store's success, what would you ask for? Right, if you had the opportunity to open up McDonald's or Jollibee or any fast food, and could wish for anything in the world to guarantee your store's success, what would you ask for? And if I took a survey of people here, I think most of you would answer location. The best location. That would ensure success. But Rodrigo says, no, it's not the best location. Why? Look around. There are stores in the best location that are failing. Right? In the transit hub or in a mall. A location doesn't guarantee success. Some of you would say, well, perhaps exposure to those with capacity, people with money to burn. Rodrigo would say, no. There are restaurants and stores in very affluent communities where people have extra money to spend, but they are barely surviving. Some would say great marketing, a mascot, a blimp to promote your hamburger stand. The answer is no. There are companies that have great marketing that fail. What's the answer? If you were selling hamburgers and could wish for anything in the world to guarantee your store success, what would you ask for? You know what the answer is? You would ask for a hungry crowd. Think about that. You would ask for a hungry crowd. It doesn't matter the location. It doesn't matter the marketing. It doesn't matter whether people have money or not. If they are hungry, they will buy something to eat. And that's why if you ever noticed, do you know when the fast food commercials come on TV? They often come on TV right before dinner time, right before lunch time, often late in the evening, especially the pizza guys. Because they are trying to market to your hunger pangs. If you are hungry, you'll call that number. I've proven this point. It's a, it's a, it's a surefire marketing technique. When you've identified the right target market for your product, selling shouldn't be a big struggle. You shouldn't have to do a lot of educating, she writes, convincing, cajoling, or even manipulating to get them to buy from you. Why? Because you choose to sell to those who already want and are looking for what you have to offer. Therefore, my friends, when you are presenting Jesus to a world that is spiritually hungry, what you have to do is to show them their need. 
deal with the sin problem. Tell them they cannot save themselves. It doesn't matter how good they are. There is no way that they are good enough to enter into heaven. When the standards of heaven is absolute holiness. And when they can come to a point that they are sinners. And that they are lost and they are imperfect. Then you present to them the one whose product offering is unique to him. The one who forgives sin. We don't have to cajole or to convince or to manipulate people to accept Jesus. When they realize that they are sinners, they will look for a Savior. So if I were to ask you, who are the people you associate with? Unfortunately, as more entrenched you are in the church, the less non-Christians you have. I think it's important that believers have non-Christian friends. Now, some of you are sitting there, yes, pastor just said I can have non-Christian friends because all my friends are non-Christians. And the reason you're thinking that is because you surround yourself with non-Christian friends, not because you want to witness to them, because you want to have a great time. And they're really cool. If God has put you in a place where you are surrounded by non-Christians, you are in the middle, in the center of the target group where you can proclaim to them you are all sinners just like I am. And there's only one who can forgive sin, and that is Jesus. For those of you who are entrenched in our church, some of you literally live here, even though technically I'm the only one that lives here, but you're here a lot. That's wonderful. We welcome you. But it's very interesting that a lot of Christians only surround themselves with other Christians. If that happens, then how can you fulfill what God calls you to do in the Great Commission? How can you sell a product to someone who already has it? Right? How can you give a product, tell someone about a product who already has it? So you need to surround yourself with men and women who don't have Jesus Christ. The target group are sinners. The lost, the imperfect. Let me close with this story. There once was a man who lived on the side of the road and sold hot dogs. He was hard of hearing, so he had no radio. He had trouble with his eyes, so he read no newspapers. And of course, he didn't look at television, but he sold very good hot dogs. He put up signs on the highway telling everyone how good they were. He stood on the side of the road and cried out to all who passed by, Buy a hot dog. They are the best in town. And the people bought his hot dogs. And as sales increased, he increased his meat and bread bun orders. As sales increased, he bought a bigger stove to take care of all the extra businesses. And because he could no longer do everything in his older age, he finally convinced his son to come and help him with his hot dog business. But then something happened. His son, who had been well-educated, said, Father... Haven't you been listening to the radio or reading the newspaper or watching television? There's a big recession happening right now. The current business situation is terrible in this country. We have problems with unemployment, 
high living costs, strikes, pollution, the influence of minorities and majorities, the rich, the poor, drugs, alcohol, capitalism, and communism. Whereupon his father thought, well, my son has been well-educated. He reads the newspaper, listens to the radio, and watches television. So he ought to know. They were living in a recession. And so his father cut down on his meat and bread bun orders, took down all his advertising signs because they cost money, and no longer bothered to stand by the side of the road to promote and sell his hot dogs. And you know what happened? His hot dog sales fell almost overnight. And he turned to his son and he said, Son, you're right. We certainly are in the middle of a recession. I want you to think about that. We all say we need to reach the sinners of this world, but it's hard. We've listened to the experts. The so-called experts who tell us it's hard. It's hard to do. You will be rejected. And that's true. It will be very difficult and it will be. But because we don't have an attitude that sacrifices willingly, we bought into the notion that our product isn't any good. Jesus will no longer sell in this century. And because we bought into the notion that it's hard to sell Jesus, even though he is the exclusive distributor of the ability to forgive sin. And we've forgotten the notion that it is the sinners who are the target market and not the Christians. That we have fallen into the trap of our own thinking that it is difficult. And so we don't do it. We listen to the experts. We watch television we read the newspapers, we surf the net, we listen to the radio, and all of it tells us Jesus does not sell in this generation. No one needs Jesus. I beg to differ. Everyone needs Jesus because everyone is a sinner, and not everyone has heard that there is one who can forgive sin. If only you and I, the sales force and the workforce of Jesus Christ, can not only be willing, but sacrificially willing to talk about the product that we've all experienced that is free of charge to a world that is looking for just that. Will you be the one? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, for your word, what a wonderful reminder even to me. And the inspiration of the scriptures, you put together these three miracles of Jesus to show forth the attitude that we must exemplify, the product and the offering that you came to give, and who we are to target. We have failed because we have not taken these into account. I pray, Lord, this morning that you have used your word to challenge us, to raise us up, to be the one who will be on fire with fervor because we have experienced Jesus in our own life. And the desperation to bring the serum of living truth 
to a world that is dying will be the impetus for us to go out and reach this world for you. Challenge the hearts of the men and women this morning. In Jesus' name we pray.